Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's turn our attention now to the State of the Union message. I know that a lot of people are waiting for this, and Chris Rupke is among them. He is the chief financial economist for MUFG Union Bank, and he joins us here in our studio. Chris Rupke, great to have you here. Hey, great to be so here. So what kind of economy What kind of economy is, is the president going to be, uh, what kind of economy do we have while the president speaks? I don't know. It was interesting. Remember during the campaign, 5% unemployment was phony. Uh, he wouldn't be getting people into the stadiums if unemployment was really 5%. But now uh, the president's crowing about how well the economy is doing with unemployment rate of 4.1%. I know and, what he's saying, but what are you saying? It, it's good. Yeah, it's, it's full employment. It's like, why did we do uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act? I mean, we've never seen another administration in history probably do fiscal stimulus tax cuts unless we're in a recession. Why are we getting tax cuts? By the way, I haven't seen my tax cuts. I was going to say, I'm looking maybe, for it. Maybe, I think it's coming no. at the end of this week, so you, you, I'll take a look at it. You should be I'm so I'm excited. Yeah. Good. You'll be excited. A little bit I, more in the envelope. Well, every time you hear about a company releasing its results, they say that there's a little bit more in the envelope. Is that... Uh, Not gonna, for someone at my level. That's exactly right. <laughs> so can you can you sort of opine about that? Because, you know, you spend all day talking about whether they're going to do a dividend increase or share buyback or uh, maybe they'll pay their workers a little... Well, we've kind of seen this before, right? What do companies do when they get the money? They usually reward their shareholders, dividends, share buybacks. But yeah, they've been doing some good PR, been giving out some $1,000 bonuses to thousands of their employees, if not the upper levels of management. So it's good. I mean, I I can't say it's, it's not good in terms of money, wherever it comes from, if money circulates in the economy, we're going to get some kind of growth. Uh, we can't say no. It's just that usually Washington, with a $20 trillion national debt, they would be doing this sort of deficit spending. It is deficit spending, right? It's not a, as if we don't have the money. Uh, but we're going to print it, right? Yeah, Isn't that the... Well, they're going to issue bonds. That's sort of like printing it. It's the same it. Yeah. thing. It's like why? Why now? Why are we doing this? I just don't. Uh, I don't quite get it. All right. So, oh, all right. Go ahead, Tom. No, I want to jump in here. We got some breaking news. Here's the headline within the press release. I love this. Hungry tape. Hungry tapeworm was such a good band. They played Grand Funk Railroad like no one. The ballooning costs of healthcare act as a hungry tapeworm on the American economy. There's the headline from Amazon. Berkshire Hathaway. And, and J.P. JP Morgan. Morgan. See, we did that in stereo. We do that. Pim and I can do that. Anyways, it's it's a, a really interesting headline. Talk about rip up the script. Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan going to form a healthcare company. To go after the hungry taper. Chris Rupke, how much is healthcare is a percent of our kajillion dollar economy? Is it 16% or is it actually more? Well, I mean, more... <laughs> it, I, I don't have that at my fingertips, but uh, it is interesting. The Fed's PCE inflation, core PCE inflation, 
a huge weight of that is health care. Yeah. It's like 20%. So you, you mean to tell me that— Financially. Y- yeah. Yeah, and I was going to say not even psychically or emotionally. 20% of your budget, of the nation's budget, yeah. X food and energy, 20% after that is health care. Yeah, so and it's, then— it's ginormous. And, it's and Pim Fox, a key paragraph here with Todd Coombs, uh, Marvell Sullivan Berkthold, and Beth Galetti of Amazon, the three major officers— a headquarters location and key operational details will be communicated to take on the hungry tapeworm. The hungry tapeworm. Well, uh, they say that they're going to provide U.S. employees and their families with simplified, <laughs> yeah. high-quality, transparent health care. The thing I would note, though, is that there is no health care company in this triumvirate. Yeah. And no, no, and, and, and Richard Truman mentions that United Healthcare trading lower office. To, to summarize, folks, because we went into it a little bit uh, quickly here, trying to get the news to you, Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase to partner on U.S. employee health care. The subheading is goal is to improve U.S. employee satisfaction while reducing costs. I mean, that's the spin. They want their employees to be happier with their coverage. But... It's a it's a we talk about the president in a private initiative today. You wonder if he'll mention this in the State of the Onion. Very good, uh, Chris Rupke. Uh, this kind of announcement, while uh, interesting and perhaps uh, will hurt, will help a lot of people. To the point about the current healthcare system, uh, do you see any way to rein in the entitlement programs in any way that would be meaningful without? cutting the quality of the care or the quality of the service delivered? It's going to be difficult, and uh, I resent your use, resent your use of the word entitlement. When I was a young man in my 30s, I could talk about those benefits being uh, entitlements for some people. But now, as I can see, those entitlements are something that I will be utilities. entitled to. Okay, utilities. So then. I would say these are very important expenditures I, I, the government agreed, needs to agreed. make. No, but that goes to the absolute societal tension the late Uwe Reinhardt at Princeton really addresses. Mm. What's interesting about this, Chris, to the president's speech tonight on infrastructure, here's private enterprise basically saying enough. Yeah, but they got to make money off it. Right. Agreed. So, uh, they say that I don't, they, I, reducing overall costs is called making money to Mr. Diamond. I'm not, not sure Mr. how Bezos they're going to do that. Buffet. Yeah, it sounds a little suspect, doesn't it? I mean, it, it's a nice idea, but it's kind of like infrastructure spending, you know, that's going to be uh, heavily dependent on private monies. It's like, well, what what sort of uh, private money is going to well, come in to do infrastructure? How are you, how yeah, does the right. business get paid? How do investors get paid? Mr. It's not easy. Mr. Bezos uh, picking avocados for Whole Foods, quote, the healthcare system is complex and we enter into this challenge open-eyed about the degree of difficulty. That's not the usual spin pin. Uh, well, I hope he's got both eyes open because it is a complex uh, system and one that uh, many people depend on. Chris, to that uh, point, though, about the programs and the ability of the society to pay for them, uh, taxes, when you cut taxes, that means there's less money to spend on these kinds of things. I don't understand the – how does that not offer a contradiction? Yeah, well, there's a, it is a contradiction. Uh, you know, how how do you pay for these monies? Uh, I mean, I mean, how do you pay for these programs? Uh, you know, I think the current uh, leadership in Washington, you know, has felt that 
we need less Washington. We need less federal government services. But um, I don't know. The next crew that comes in might want to do something else. The, the reason I wanted to focus on yeah. health care is because of the demographic bulge of the baby boom generation. Oh, it's going to be very retiring. expensive, yes. And so the cost is going to go up. And then uh, I recently uh, was at a conference and heard one theory about why we have such sluggish growth and uh, low unemployment, uh, low um, inflation. It's because as yeah. the baby boomers age, right, you have an economy is they're pulling out of their uh, they're they're exiting the job market. Can I can I make a surveillance correction? Go ahead. It's so important. Is it's a nonprofit. I mean, Mr. No, Mr. Bezos, Mr. Diamond, and Mr. Buffett go to the hungry tapeworm that is our <laughs> medical system. Daniel Engber to the rescue with slate. Tapeworms don't make you hungry. That's the research. Not that I've ever had a tapeworm. Have you had a tapeworm, Ben? Not going. I've, there. I've not. I've not had a tapeworm. But they, they can cause a vitamin B12 deficiency in some patients, but they just they, they don't make you hungry. You just are not interested in eating. You know, maybe he would have saved that for after Only surveillance Chris been... has this, you know. Chris Rupke, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate this morning. Some terrific perspective across television and radio as well. to healthcare. Why don't you bring in our good guest here who's expert on hungry tapeworms. Max Neeson. Let's not go with tapeworms. It's too early in the morning everywhere. And some places it's too early for dinner. Um, JP Morgan, Berkshire Hathaway, and Amazon say they're going to get together and help their employees. They're going to provide better, less expensive healthcare. What's your reaction? So my initial reaction was this was not the Amazon foray into healthcare that, that has been expected you know, for about a year now, which was something like a, a more aggressive foray into uh, mail-order pharmaceuticals, pharmaceutical benefit managers. What they're doing is, I think, even more interesting. Um, they're potentially going to run, along with these two other companies, um, their own health plans entirely for employees. And since they're not just doing this informally, they're creating a company, that suggests if they figure out how to do this well, and given the people involved, that that's a decent bet. Um, they, they might try to okay. bring it to other employers. Is it Kaiser Permente from 40 years ago where, you know, the heritage out West, they did it different out West with Kaiser? I, I think ultimately, you know, if, if you, they have grand ambitions and, and I think if they're going to take this kind of step, they, they probably do. That's something of the model that they're going to look to emulate, um, you know, doing things starting from a different point of view with a different set of priorities, not attempting to, to make a profit, um, as they kind of highlighted repeatedly in their press release. Um, that being the, the great frustration that so much in American healthcare is not geared at bringing costs down, but for um, you know, eking out a profit margin for every single person along the way, insurers, PBMs, providers. Yeah. Any chance that this is going to present a conflict of interest with what their real businesses are? Uh, I don't think so, at least at, a, at the start, considering they're you know, initially focusing just on their own employees and on other employers. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, they're, they're just attempting yeah. to, to keep costs down for their employees. It'll be more interesting when they bring it to other companies or if they right. say try to get into providers. I mean, we we'll know see. that everybody with Jeff Bezos is cut and chiseled. Maybe I can't say that of Berkshire Hathaway and, and J.P. Morgan, but is this the beginning 
of companies saying enough is enough. We're going to essentially self-insure is all we're talking about here. They're going to self-insure where you begin to separate healthy, employed America away from unhealthy, lesser or unemployed America. I mean, that, that's already a reality in, in our healthcare system. If you Agreed. work at a large Strongly employer, yeah. your, your healthcare is, is subsidized to an extent that, that nobody really realizes, um, unless you later end up unemployed or on the individual market where um, the burden falls much more aggressively on you, pay much more out of pocket, you pay higher prices because you don't have the benefit of that enormous uh, employer tax exclusion for healthcare benefits and the power, you know, all of that negotiating power aggregated in the form of not just your employer, but, you know, everyone who they participate in a PBM or, uh, or bigger insurer with. What uh, what are some of the uh, the competitive challenges to putting together something like this? Um, I mean, they're going to have to basically learn how to operate, you know, ho however much they're going to do. You know, they might still contract with an insurer or PBM for parts of, of the business like self-insured companies currently do. But every piece that they're going to pick up on their own and run on their own, they're going to have to learn how to do from the start. And, you know, they put the challenge well, on themselves to figure out how to do it better with more technology. Right, right. Max, I'm begging you. Max Neeson, of course, folks, with Bloomberg Gadfly, he writes these terrific chart paragraph chart stories. Are you going to write about this today? I, I'm, I've already started. <laughs> really, really looking forward to this. He, already brought, he also brought in his, uh, his medicine <clears throat> kit to help you get over the plague. So yeah. he cares. It's a plague. It's like a 13th century thing. It's a I mean, serious you know, just, thing. Fortunately, you're in the surveillance cone of silence, so you're hermetically sealed away from me. Is that why I'm hermetically yeah, sealed? Yeah, you see the call oh, okay. that you got coming I down. thought Max and I were together. No, just... Max is going to get the plague, but you're not. <laughs> <laughs> but an interesting uh, concept, right? Uh, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, yeah. Particularly the notion, and this is probably the thing I'm going to focus on, um, that this is kind of a pilot uh, among themselves to figure out, can we make a company out of this okay. uh, for other people? Max, thank you so much. Terry Haynes is Evercore ISI's senior political strategist. He's the head of political analysis and a managing director. He is also experienced in the ways of Washington, D.C., former uh, chief counsel, staff director of the U.S. House Committee on Financial Services and senior counsel on U.S. House Energy and Commerce Committee and a variety of other government positions. Terry, good to have you with us here on Bloomberg. What are you going to be listening for from the President Donald Trump's State of the Union message? Uh, good to be here, Pim, and thank you. Uh, the well, I'm going to be, you know, the, the president essentially is going to divide this speech into three parts, uh, and I think everybody knows what uh, what those three parts will be. So I won't spend long on them. First will be the I think the first year achievements. You know, they uh, uh, we all dip into the Trump show on a daily basis, but uh, this is an opportunity to uh, to provide a best of and a framing device uh, for the president in his first year in office. So I think they'll do that. They'll run through a bunch of 2018 priorities. Infrastructure, of course, is going to get hammered in quite a bit. I uh, expect him to talk about trade, uh, housing finance, a bunch of other things, and finally a national security focus. Uh, the two things I'm going to listen to with particularly closely, uh, one I, I think will be housing finance. Uh, I expect Secretary Mnuchin to testify this morning on the Hill that uh, he remains interested in housing finance. It's not a secret that he is, but uh, at the same time, uh, a renewed commitment to trying to get something done uh, from the administration uh, will uh, 
will be important for markets. And secondly, uh, whatever signals on trade uh, the president wants to send. I, I've always said that trade's one of the three big unknowns uh, this year, uh, and, and certainly trade policy is atop that. And the question really is, uh, you know, we got a positive read out of NAFTA yesterday, out of the, the end of the Montreal round from, uh, from USTR Lighthizer. Uh, the question is, uh, does the president continue that kind of pro uh, pro-business, pro-market uh, approach that he first talked about in Davos last week and was underscored by Lighthizer? Uh, or does he go back to a more saber-rattling, if I don't like it, I'll, uh, I'll get rid of it sort of approach where it comes to NAFTA? And uh, that'll be market moving as well. Terry, based on your experience, to whom is the president really going to be speaking tonight? Well, but my experience is that the president uh, uses this speech to speak directly to the American people. It's, it's the largest audience uh, that the president will have all year, uh, unless there's some disaster, of course, that uh, the, that requires. But uh, presidents always look at this opportunity as one where they get to actually talk to the American people. They get to characterize their own presidency uh, directly, uh, and they get to lay out their priorities uh, directly uh, so that they can you know, not only frame you know, what it is, how it is uh, that they want to move forward, but also, you know, frankly, in political terms, uh, uh, put the opposition on the back foot, too. Well, that's where I was going with this, because, of course, this is the first president that really uses the social media world of Twitter and a variety of other uh, mechanisms to speak directly to his constituents and indeed to the country and the world. Sure. Uh, and he gets to use but he, and he gets to use the. Uh, yeah, the, the cameras and the more conventional media here to uh, to to do something other than uh, other than kind of you know the, the the message of the moment and actually gets to frame his own presidency and uh, and have people to try to understand exactly what he's up to as president beyond uh, beyond the Twitter of the day and oh. uh, and that's and I think that's particularly important for this president frankly. All right, what would you like to hear about uh, regarding housing finance? <laughs> what would I like to? I don't have the luxury to tell you what I'd like to hear. What I think is, uh, uh, what I'll be interested in is whether or not that makes the speech. Frankly, uh, that it has been a, as I say, by priority of Secretary Mnuchin's for some time. Uh, he first talked about his desire to want to do something on housing finance uh, before he was even Treasury Secretary, after he was nominated, but uh, the end of 2016. And uh, every time uh, he talks about this, uh, the, the, the markets blip in a positive way. Uh, housing stocks uh, rise. And you know, what, gonna I'd happen like to see, what I'd like to see, frankly, is whether there's a commitment from the president himself to invest political capital in this. Because if that's the case, then you might get something. What, what, uh, what's your read on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? Uh, my my read generally is that you know we've got a situation where uh, the enterprises have been in conservatorship for a decade. Uh, it's uh, it's time to take a serious look at whether to get them out or not. The previous administration's policy was that uh, we'll get them out when Congress tells us to get them out, but not before then. And uh, and what needs to happen fundamentally is, uh, is is there needs to be an understanding and some kind of coming together in, in Congress and you know with the president and Secretary. Mnuchin as well, uh, to talk about uh, what housing finance is going to look 
like going forward? I mean, are we going to get, uh, are we going to, if we're going to get greater participation from financial institutions, what does that look like? Uh, there is some policy difference between Democrats and Republicans on whether there should be, whether the, uh, the GSE structure should still be maintained. Uh, that's compromisable in my view. Uh, but, uh, what you're, you know, the, the fundamental issue is going to be whether or not we're going to get more capital into the housing market or not and, uh, and whether we're going to get a greater focus on housing finance because our view has always been here has always been that um, the current state of affairs has been a, a negative for the housing market and a negative for the markets generally. Based on your understanding of Secretary Mnuchin's background, what does he bring that's special to the conversation and debate about housing finance? Uh, I think two things. One, he's actually uh, he's actually been in the markets. He actually understands the markets on a first uh, first hand uh, basis, and I think that's important. Uh, we have not had. Uh, it's been a while since we've had a Treasury Secretary that had, that, that had that kind of direct knowledge. I mean, certainly I'd give, I'd give Secretary Geithner and Secretary Paulson uh, both, uh, both marks for that, but it's been a little while. Secretary Liu certainly didn't have that, that sort of uh, fundamental background, number one. Number two, he brings a, uh, he brings a commitment to it. And uh, what you need fundamentally on this issue, and I think this was proved in 2014, the last time anybody tried to do something like this, um, you need commitment from the highest levels of the government and the executive branch particularly to try to uh, uh, try to knock heads together in the Congress and get something done here. And that hasn't existed for a while. And uh, Secretary Mnuchin uh, would like to do this. He's been clear about it. Uh, and now that uh, now that he's used some political capital on, uh, on tax reform, uh, he appears to be interested in doing it again. So we'll see where he goes. And we'll see if the president agrees and wants to say something about it in the speech. We'll be listening, and we'll also be looking for your reaction to it as well. Thank you very much. Uh, Terry Haynes is uh, Evercore ISI's senior political strategist. He's the head of political analysis and a managing director. Our guest is Emily Rowland, head of capital markets research at John Hancock Investments, joining us from Boston, home to Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Newburyport, and 1330 in Metro West and the South Shore. Emily, thank you very much for being with us. Complacency and volatility. I'm wondering if you could describe your thinking about both of those as they affect investors. You know, when I think about our outlook heading into 2018, I would say it was probably a bit more optimistic than consensus. We really felt that tax reform and earnings growth were likely underappreciated catalysts that would drive markets higher. And really looking at the extraordinary returns that we've seen so far this year, markets are up 7% in one of the best starts to a year in recent history. And in our view, it'd be pretty difficult to keep up this pace. Uh, we really think it's, it's highly likely that we'll see some sort of pullback in the card, some increased volatility as we continue into 2018. And we think investors really probably aren't prepared for this. Just looking back last year, the maximum drawdown we saw in the S&P 500 was 3%. That means that even if you chose the worst day to invest in 2017, the most you lost was 3%. Now, that hadn't happened since 1995, and the average is about 14%. Uh, so we think we're going to get back to those averages, and investors might be caught off guard when volatility really does start to pick up here. Well, what should investors do in order to hedge or prepare for this increased volatility that you say we're going to get? 
Well, we think it's important for investors to simply revisit their risk tolerances, make sure that they're investing in a way that aligns with their longer-term goals. Because if you think about it, you know, the investor psychology is sort of pointing to this environment where we're kind of moving into, and maybe not quite yet excessive optimism, but we're sort of moving into, I would call it sort of the excitement phase now. And we're really starting to see that evidence with the flow data. If you look at the first couple of weeks of 2018 from a flow into global equity standpoint, we're seeing about four times the flows into equities that we saw this time last year. So we're seeing investors get excited at potentially the sort of the wrong time in the market. So we're suggesting that they really kind of take a look at their long-term plan. Okay. So having sort of said that, is there anything specific that you would offer? Is it to rebalance the portfolio based on the performance of the constituent parts? Is it actually may be taking a profit. I mean, as you mentioned, S&P 500 has a gain right now of almost 7% for the year. The NASDAQ is up more than 8%. Uh, market timing is not necessarily a, uh, uh, a surefire way to financial success. Right. But having said that, uh, you don't, get, you don't uh, go broke taking a profit. Right. You know, we certainly believe that rebalancing is is a good uh, thing to do at all times. But don't get me wrong. I'm calling for a pullback in the markets. But actually, our view is quite positive more broadly. You know, thinking about our longer-term outlook, 12 to 18 months, the synchronized global growth story really is a powerful one. Earnings growth remains supportive. We're seeing significant upgrades in terms of the earnings outlook for next year. You know, when I looked at the numbers at the beginning of this year, it was about 11% outlook for earnings growth next year, and that's been bumped up to 16% on the back of tax reform and other uh, positive uh, momentum here. So as long as we continue to see inflation remain somewhat subdued, which which we think is our real base case here, we think that this cycle can continue and that there are opportunities for risk assets heading into 2018. It's just important to remember that we are going to experience more normal levels of volatility. Okay. Having said that, then where do you look for this relative value? Is it outside the United States? Is it, is it in specific industry groups or specific asset classes? Yeah, sure. Um, we are positive on both U.S. and non-U.S. equities today. Um, there is a, a, a good valuation opportunity looking overseas. Uh, typically, the U.S. trades to uh, non-U.S. equities at about an 8% premium, and that's actually about 24% today. So comparing U.S. versus non-U.S. from a valuation standpoint, we think that there's an opportunity overseas. We also are suggesting that investors consider international small cap equities. Not only do they have a a historical performance advantage over their large cap peers, but the 2018 earnings outlook for small cap equities overseas is actually outpacing the outlook for international small cap equities. And really the idea here is that those domestically oriented companies overseas, those smaller companies, are really going to be the relative beneficiaries of this strong, synchronized global growth we're seeing, particularly picking up overseas. All right. But international small cap, won't that be affected if the U.S. dollar continues to weaken? 
Yeah, we're seeing a continued weakening of the U.S. dollar here, which will be an advantage to U.S. investors that are investing overseas. And again, the strengthening euro, if you think about investing overseas, will have a uh, put some pressure on those large European multinational firms. But again, those domestically oriented companies will be more insulated from that dynamic. Give you 10 seconds to tell us what investment would you absolutely positively stay away from? Yeah, I mean, certainly I think, uh, you know, U.S. Treasuries, uh, we're starting to see a, pr- a pretty meaningful backup in yields here. We've been negative on, on you know, corporate, uh, government debt for quite some time here. There's simply better opportunities in this reflationary environment to invest in equities over fixed income. Thank you very much for being with us. Emily Rowland is the head of capital markets research at John Hancock Investments and joining us from Boston. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.